Welcome to this edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Alongside Blue Ribbon's Chris Dorch, I'm Kevin Ingram. Always great to have you with us. We have a huge weekend of games coming up after a January that was jam-packed with upsets. Our guest today is one of the best play-by-play voices in the country. He is John Shabby from ESPN. He's going to join us in just a bit. Outstanding at college basketball and, of course, Major League Baseball, where he calls games for the Cubs. He calls the World Series. Uh, he is terrific, and he's going to join us in just a bit. Chris, I, I did Vanderbilt game at Auburn last night and I ran into a guy that I know is very special to you and uh, that's one Sonny Smith uh, the of course awesome. uh, longtime coach he had a, a great run at Auburn he's been on the radio broadcast for for many years um, and, and I had a minute to to go over and say hello and I told him that, that we were friends and and he said to uh, tell you all the best and uh, to say hello and and uh, how much he thinks of you as well well, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. I, I wouldn't have done anything without him uh, taking me under his wing when I was a student at East Tennessee State, and he was the head coach there. He just really showed me the game of college basketball from a coach's perspective, and I think that that allowed me to report with maximum fairness the rest of my career, knowing that coaches get too much credit when they win and too much blame when they lose and how difficult it is just to keep a college basketball program together. And uh, I owe that all to him. I mean, I'm going to say it in my speech at, at the U.S. Basketball Writers Hall of Fame. If not for him, um, you know, nobody's heard of me. He and Andy Burcham are a lot of fun to listen to on the Auburn games. If you get a chance, maybe have satellite radio or, or tune in on the app. Or is he still doing like the games? He is. He does. Uh, he doesn't do all of them. He does most of the home games, I think. Yeah, um, I, I don't think know that he travels anymore, anymore but uh, I yeah. saw him last night and I had to go over and say hello. I was talking to Andy for a couple minutes, too, and th- those guys are great. And I'm glad you did, man. That is a great atmosphere at Auburn. I mean, that, to me, is one of the best buildings in the country, and it's a home court advantage that reminds you a little bit of Cameron Indoor Stadium with the way they have the students right down on the court uh the building yeah. itself is really really nice they did, they've done a great job there and having good teams helps too that auburn team i know they stumbled yeah, a couple times last week uh at mississippi state and at alabama before that but they have a team that's uh, you know as good as anybody in the sec and i, I think has a chance to uh, be a real contender when uh the tournament rolls around yeah bruce has done such a great job as he does everywhere um he'd still be at tennessee if not for a couple of slip-ups uh ncaa wise but uh yeah, they built that building down there with the perfect size in mind. I think it seats around 10,000. Yeah, like 9,100 or something there. in that range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before Bruce got there, they had to put dark curtains up, you know, to mask the, the emptiness. But uh, now the place is packed. He's got a student section that is bonkers. Uh, I'd say would stand toe-to-toe with Duke. I don't know about the creativity part. Those Duke guys. <laughs> those Duke guys. Brainiacs are pretty nasty uh, when it comes to looking up uh, oppo research. But uh, you're right. Auburn is, is, is one heck of a place to go and play. Yeah, last night was their 50th consecutive sellout. They have uh, filled that place with with loud fans, and their team uh, has rewarded them with win after win this season. Well, let's talk about some of the games this week. And I mentioned all the upsets, and maybe not the biggest upset in the world, but going back to last night up in Lexington, Florida took down Kentucky 94-91 in overtime. Walter Clayton Jr. found what he was looking for. I always think he sounds like uh, he, he should be in U2. 
talk about the, <laughs> Adam Clayton and Larry right. Mullen Jr. Is, is my joke there. Yeah. But Walter Clayton Jr., uh, he was the one. He tied the game with a three with three seconds left in regulation. Uh, ended up with seven three-pointers and 23 points. Had another big one in overtime and a couple key free throws. Gators shot it well from three, 42%. They made 18 out of 22 from the foul line. So they've won back-to-back overtime games. They withstood a big Georgia rally on Saturday, and Florida scored their biggest win of the season last night. Yeah, it was crazy. I watched that game, and you know, it's it's funny. Almost always, the team that scores the first basket in overtime seems to win. And Florida got that first basket in there. Uh, in fairness, uh, Kentucky was without DJ Wagner and Justin Edwards, two freshman starters, and they're not even sure about their availability for when Tennessee comes in. Which, uh, by the way, was a victim of its own. Some would say upset, some maybe not. Yeah. Uh, losing at home where they never lose uh, to South Carolina on a night when they missed, I, I don't know, I, they shot, they usually hit 60% of their two-point attempts, and on this night they shot somewhere in the 40 percentile. They missed a ton of layups and and lost that game. So uh, there's going to be two mad teams at Rupp Arena on Saturday, Tennessee and Kentucky. Yeah, I saw that Tennessee game. Uh, of course, Dalton Connect got his, but South Carolina made some big plays at the end to uh, get to the finish line. And, well, that team for Lamont Paris, like I say, it's becoming one of the stories of the season. Uh, Taylon Cooper hit that key three-pointer with 40 seconds left, and I saw Miles Studi put it on ice with a couple of free throws. Yeah, he, he was at Vanderbilt last season, and he's been injured some. He, I think he had just come yeah. back uh, for that game. He literally just came back. Yeah, and, and yeah. hit those two big free throws at the end as Carolina beat uh, 10th-ranked Kentucky. But, you know, Chris, you got to take that team seriously they're six and two in the sec 18 and three overall just having a great season and uh you start to look down the road and i mean they're they're in really good shape i really admire and respect lamont paris as i've said probably the last two podcasts i knew him when he was at utc and i teach there very smart guy very measured guy uh but there were times at utc when i wasn't sure he had control of his locker room and then all of a sudden he did. And they went to the NCAA and that was his out. He had to take it. Uh, he jumped for the, the best job that, I mean, probably the best paying job, South Carolina. And I wondered, and many wondered whether he was an improvement over Frank Martin. And the thing that he's done, of course, he was an assistant in Wisconsin and uh, they ran that, that outside in offense there. Mm-hmm. And he runs some of that stuff. They take a lot of threes, but the, the thing that really impresses me about them is they get down and they get they guard you. They're physical. Uh, John Calipari said it the other night. They're as good a defensive team as there is in the SEC, and that's saying something in a league that prides itself on defense. So, yeah, uh, Lamont, right now, I, I mean, he's definitely the coach of the year in the SEC, and you might have to consider him coach of the year in the country so far. I want to ask you one more question going back to that uh, Kentucky and Florida game. The age-old question, do you foul to prevent a three-point try to potentially tie in the closing seconds? Kentucky was in that situation, and Calipari said after the game that, well, maybe there was too much time left to, to do that. I always say I, I would err on the side of letting just playing it out. I understand the strategy, though, behind fouling. I, I can't remember exactly where you come down on all this. Uh, that's a good question. I'm falling every time because, uh, and we saw this at the SEC tournament one year, I believe it was Kentucky and Mississippi state. 
that intentionally missed a free throw, got the rebound, and put it back up. Now, in Kentucky's case, I think they had to rebound it with two seconds left and make a three, which is, I, I think, impossible. But to me, the odds are much better to follow a guy, put him in the free throw line, and, okay, if you can bounce one up and one of your guys rebounds it and sticks it in, hats off. Yeah. But I'd much rather deal with that than than a, a in-motion in step-up, step-in three. Uh, we've seen it so many times. So I think that happens much more than somebody trying to miss a free throw, rebound it, and put it back up. So I'm following every time. Uh, some people talk about, well, don't give them too much time. Sometimes you can't really – if you're a coach, you can't really dictate that. Yeah. Just go follow somebody. And, and make sure they don't beat us, you know, with a desperation three. The one thing that drives me mental, though, are, are guys fouling on three-point attempts. I mean, you can close oh. out, get a hand up, but don't make contact and bump the guy and, and put him at oh. the line for three. Just don't do it. I, I saw it at the end of that uh, Auburn and Alabama game the other night, and I thought it was, a, it was a very marginal call on the foul, but Auburn got three free throws. Now, Baker Mazzaro only made two out of three when he was trying to tie the game, but, I mean, don't even give him an option of, of making that call. Just, uh, like no. I say, get a hand up, close out, but don't make contact. you got to really be careful in those situations. Don't look cross-eyed at him. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's the cardinal sin in college basketball basketball now especially you know in late game situations but uh i've i've seen it a bunch uh gosh uh, in in 2019 uh, tennessee was playing purdue for a spot in the elite eight and uh, purdue trailed by three or two carson edwards who was known for kicking his left foot out uh took a desperation three from the corner and one of tennessee's players fouled him Puts him at the line. He makes two of three. They go into overtime, and Purdue wins for a spot in the Elite Eight. And, uh, you know, people get on Rick about, you know, second-round Rick and stuff like that. You can't control stuff like that. You coach players, do not foul a three-shooter. And and then, you know, they foul Carson Edwards, who's uh, stock and trade was kicking out that left foot. And uh, now I've seen that called as a charge or as an offensive foul. Yeah, I saw just the other day I saw that when somebody kicked out their foot. So I think Carson Edwards kind of drew some attention to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you see guys do that, and there haven't been tons of offensive fouls called this season. It's been much, much different in terms of uh, how the block charge is officiated. Georgia Tech beat North Carolina in Atlanta 74-73 a couple nights ago, ending a 10-game win streak for the uh, Tar Heels. Nathan George made a layup with seven seconds left. Uh, Second-ranked Purdue barely avoided losing again to Northwestern in overtime. The Boilers won 105-96 in OT. Zach Eady scored 10 of his 30 in the extra period let's talk about free throws purdue 29 out of 46 <laughs> northwestern was six of eight they did make 14 of 27 from three but chris collins got tossed to the end it's hard to blame him uh, he went over and congratulated matt painter and zach Eady and the purdue folks before he uh, headed off to the locker room and he didn't really want to talk about it after the game but man 29 of 46 versus six out of eight i, I know you're going to have some disparity sometime but man that's a, that's a pretty big margin right there you know, he's a pretty chill dude. I got to know him a little bit when I was writing a column for NBA.com. He would help me with sometimes when I was writing about one of Duke's players that could get drafted. But he just finally had it and went bonkers. I, I mean, a disparity like that. Now, now, granted, 
Zach Eady leads the nation in fouls drawn for 40 minutes. He's already attempted 231 free throws. Here's what's crazy about that. He's only taken 273 shots. So he's already taken only 40 less free throws than he has shots. So, you know, going in, there's going to be a disparity. But that just seems a little ridiculous. And and I don't blame him for going bonkers. They had already upset uh, Purdue and uh, were, were close to doing it again. I mean, Boo Boo, he had a shot at 81 all, I think, in, in regulation to do the deed. But uh, as, as Collins pointed out in the postgame, he didn't obviously call out referees, but he said Boo Booey, you know, one of the top 10 point guards in the country, gets zero free throw attempts. I mean, th- that's the kind of stuff that if you're a coach, it's just got to drive you bananas. I don't blame him for going off. I, w- I would have gone off for sure. By the way, Zach Edia headlines the Wooden Award late season top 20 list. He was the winner last year trying to become the first repeat winner in over 40 years since Ralph Sampson back in uh, 82 and 83, another very good big man during his days at Virginia. Chris, sign stealing has been a thing in various sports. Of course, Connor Stallions, the the infamous uh, guy with the Michigan football program. You've had the scandal in Major League Baseball with the trash can banging Houston Astros from a few years ago. We've also heard accusations from the Kansas State-Iowa State game the other night. K-State coach Jerome Tang was concerned that T.J. Otzelberger or somebody for Iowa State had people stationed behind their bench relaying information by text to the Cyclones huddle. Uh, the coaches had an exchange uh, during the game, I think, and then again in the handshake line. Uh, Tang says they'll talk it out. He says he loves TJ, but uh, that that's very interesting. And I have some of my own conspiracy theories about how those things go in college basketball. But there's a fine line between gamesmanship and doing what's legal and then doing stuff that, that crosses the line. TJ's another guy that, uh, thanks to that NBA.com gig, I, I'm – Got to know a little bit, and, and I just cannot see that from him. I think he's by the book straight up. And this is a case, honestly, where, you know, hometown media and, and social media blend to cause this. Um, a K-State beat writer uh, reported that uh, as fact that Iowa State had placed representatives behind the bench and I just don't get that because scouting has gotten so sophisticated now. You can watch so much tape. You can watch every play and synergy. And I think scouting, I mean, yeah, you're trying to intercept play calls through scouting, but I I can't possibly imagine trying to sit somebody behind a bench and trying to hear what they're saying and and trying to see the clipboard. I'm just not buying it. I, I, I really don't think so. And, you know, both coaches were pretty chill about it to each other and where, where it could have gotten ugly. But I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying that TJ and I, like, go bowling together. But just from what I know of him, I would be stunned if, if that were a thing. To me, the, the thing about it, too, is, and, and they're, what I think they were accusing him of was, was shooting video and then, then texting it over to the huddle. But, you know, in the short amount of time you have in a timeout, I mean, how, how can you turn that information it. around and process it and actually put it to use? Uh, that, that part I don't yeah. know. And uh, I, I saw a, a clip or a quote from Matt Painter talking about that sort of thing, how they would put up, like, dummy stuff on a uh, dry erase board or whatever and, and hold it up. And it would be wrong. Like it'd be a decoy. Yeah. It wasn't really what they were doing. And uh, they're, they're all yep. right. There are all sorts of things that go on to try to prevent that from happening. One of my theories is, is that you're seeing a lot more schools 
when you think about how the TV camera shoots the court at an arena, they're putting the benches and the scores table on the near side rather than the traditional side that's opposite the camera. And one of my theories right. is, is part of it is coaches want this to keep people from watching what they're doing on their bench and maybe how they're relaying their size. I know part of it, too, is so people who donate a lot of money can get on TV by, by sitting in that row in the front row. But yeah, exactly. I, I've never heard anybody say that, but that, that's sort of my theory on this whole thing. You know, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And, and you see in a lot of sports where football, especially where coaches cover their mouths when they're, mm-hmm. you know, relaying something to a player and they don't want somebody possibly lip reading what they say you know, or in baseball. Like you see the guys put the gloves, you know, over yeah, their mouths when yeah, they're exactly. having a conversation on the mound. Exactly. I, I just in basketball, I mean, honestly, in all the years I've covered this game, this is the first time I've really heard of anything like this. And I just, again, w- with TJ Altsberger, I just cannot believe that he thinks that that's going to give him a competitive advantage. He's got a really good team this year. Uh, that's taken no prisoners. So I don't think they have to resort to that. Um, there was another accusation in there that was that was tweeted out by the uh, Iowa State beat writer that the Kansas State uh, coaches cussed out a student manager who was mopping the floor. I know we're going to talk about a floor mopper <laughs> later. But, but, but it's like these beat writers, it's almost like they're engaging in their own little bit of warfare too. And I'll tell you what, and I, I, I was taught this from the earliest days of journalism school. If you say something, you better make sure you're right. Right. You better daggone make sure you're right. Uh, the first thing that I ever heard in J school, there was this old professor. He was, he wasn't really a professor. He was just an old editor from one of the local papers and he was truly the ink stained wretch. He had coffee stains on his shirt. And, and, and the first thing he ever said to me was, if somebody tells you his name is Smith, ask him how it's spelled because it could be S M Y T H. And that I never forgot that. I told my students that just this week and, and not in relation to this, but if you report that somebody's stealing signs, you better be daggone sure of that. You better be daggone sure. And I just doubt that T.J. Altsenberger would, would resort to that. I don't think he has to resort to that. I don't think his team, he's got a good team. Chris, uh, I don't know how to make this segue into Will Wade. We were talking about accusations, but uh, he has a very strong team at McNeese State. They're 19-2, and 8-0 uh, and in the Southland Conference. Uh, could he be on the way somewhere else? Of course, we all know what happened uh, with him when he was at LSU. He's made a few stops, including uh, in your town there in Chattanooga. What do you think's next for that guy, and where, where does the season go from here, really, for the team he has now? You never know about old Will. He's a slick one, but, he, but he's also smart and hardworking. Uh, he's done a great job there. Of course, the first 10 games he had to sit out because of NCAA sanctions basically a slap on the wrist for, you know, what he was recorded uh, with his strong ass offers and whatnot, but he, he's done a great job. And uh, I will say this, you look at three teams in a row, they beat biblical studies, 96 to 55 champion Christian, 110 to 46 and Latorno 81 to 49 later on in the season beat Mississippi university for women one would hope they do have some dudes in the, in the school, 92 to 23. But 
But he's doing it just like he learned from Shaka Smart at VCU. They're number 25 in the country in turnover rate, number 13 in steals rate, number one in three-point percentage. So steals, pressure defense, and jacking up threes. It's a winning formula at that level. Uh, he didn't do it so much at LSU, but he's a good coach, and I I don't think this will be his last destination. Let's put it that way. The other guy who's been a fantastic coach for a long time is Tom Izzo. 700 career wins for Michigan State's coach. He reached the milestone with a win over Michigan on his birthday, 81-62. I can't imagine it gets a whole lot better than that. All the wins at Michigan State, the 38th men's coach to get to that milestone. He's 700 and 288. Former players celebrated with him on the court, including Steve Smith and Mateen Cleave. So congrats to uh, Tom Izzo on win number 700. And in an era where we've seen a lot of the, the big names and some of the older coaches decide to call it quits, it's good to see a guy like Izzo, who's one of the icons of the sport, still doing it at a high level. And one of the best dudes ever. I, I can only tell you what I know, and this I know. Every year, he goes up to his lake house uh, somewhere in Michigan. It's about a two-hour drive. And uh, his SID gets together with, with my writer, and they always plan their conversation for Blue Ribbon when Tom's traveling up there. And the reason is, you know, it helps Tom pass the time away, but he can give my writer as much time as he wants. So they typically talk an hour. Wow. And, you know, he's got tremendous respect for, for Blue Ribbon and even recorded a, a commercial with EA Sports years ago. Uh, Bruce Pearl was on it. Bill Self was on it. And, you know, singing the praises of the book. I appreciate that. But he's just one of the best. He does things the right way. Uh, you know, if you want to call him old school for that, call him old school, but, uh, it's hard on his kids. Uh, but I'll tell you what, like you said, those veterans come back, they all love him. They all know what he's done for that program. Yeah. I have friends or two in common with him as well. And, uh, one of them told me they went to a cookout at his house one time, and you would expect maybe other people to be doing the cooking and cleaning and all that stuff. He said, no, Tom Izzo's doing all of it. He's flipping the burgers. He's you know handing out <laughs> drinks and, and everything, and it, it was really interesting and, and fun to be around him. And, and, and by all accounts, just one of the great guys and been one of the great coaches in college basketball for a long time. Quick story about our guest. Uh, my family and I, we were at Wrigley Field last summer for a game, and I looked over to the TV booth, and I'm thinking, man, that John Shabby has some sweet gigs, including uh, on TV doing games for Marquee Call on the Cubs and, of course, an outstanding college basketball announcer as well for ESPN. And John is kind enough to join us here for a few minutes. What's going on? Hey, how you guys doing? Doing good. Doing well, Booga. Uh, before we get into basketball, I just had to tell you, Congrats for ascending to the radio voice of the World Series. You are in the Mount Rushmore there, my friend. John Miller, uh, Dan Schulman, Vin Scully, and my guy, having grown up a Cardinal fan, Jack Buck. Yeah. Uh, so congrats. You do such a great job on that. I, I just had to tell you that before we, we you got out of here. <laughs> I really appreciate that, Chris. I uh, that You know, that is something for me that's like a dream come true. And I would tell you that in terms of the experience, if you've ever had something that you have a certain expectation for and the event or the experience lives up to it, absolutely. That was my experience with the World Series. I loved it every single bit as much uh, as I thought I would. And, 
Yeah, I'm honored. I, I've said like the, the 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 names that you're listing there. It's I feel like I like you know slip past the bouncer, right? So, <laughs> um, no. it's uh, it's 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 real. I'm I'm super grateful, and uh, I thank you for saying that. Well, now switching to that larger ball. Uh, yeah. In, in your travels so far, what's the best team you've seen? Man, that's a good question. So I, I'm not, I'm not honestly sure. I, you know, year in and year out, sometimes I get more exposure non-conference to a, a, a larger amount of teams. This year it was probably less. I mean, it. I, so I think it's probably one of the big 12 teams, to be honest with you. I, I would tell you one of the things I'm always staggered by is I get to do one of those early season tournaments most years. The last few years, it's been the Bahamas. And I mean to say, if you had asked me at the end of that tournament to sign something and get it notarized, like Villanova's better than North Carolina. Like, yeah. they just are. And it, it, and then Villanova comes home and they lose, I think, to Drexel and to St. Joe's. And... They just haven't been able to find consistency in Carolina. Obviously, the loss the other night, but um, you know they've taken off. So it, it's just always interesting to to watch teams uh, grow. And the one thing that I always say about this sport, it is impossible, good or bad, to play the same in November, December, January, February, and March. It's not possible. And it's one of the things that Coach K was always so good at. However he was able to do it was find a way to get his teams, you know, peaking at the at the right time. But there's just, there's going to be change. And yet, you know, my reference point for Villanova and North Carolina are those games back in November. You know what I mean? John, you have uh, Houston and Kansas coming up this weekend, which is going to be a fantastic matchup in the top 10. Of course, a great atmosphere there, too, in Lawrence. Uh, give us a quick preview of that one. Houston just always feels like they're just relentless. And then Kansas you know, has a, has a pretty veteran team, including Hunter Dickinson, who they added this past offseason. What do you expect in that one? Houston is not going to be scared by that environment. I mean, they have they got some – some dudes on that team, uh, you know, Cryer obviously has been through battles transferring over from Baylor, but sheds their guy and they, you know, their toughness on defense starts with him. He's turned into a guy that, that will make big shots if you need him to make big shots as well. Um, you know, look, that atmosphere is is really tough, but I would not be surprised if Houston was able to go in there and get a win. For Kansas, one thing that the, both those teams share in common, and, and this is another topic that's always interesting, is they're not very deep. Yeah. Full stop. And does that matter? I don't know that it matters. If you get an injury to one of your significant guys, then obviously it matters. But as a general idea, I'm not so sure that that matters that much. I think that you can win playing seven um, or seven and a half, if you will. I, I So neither of these teams are particularly deep, but like for Kansas, you know, McCuller, Harris, Dickinson, um, and K.J. Adams are going to be on the court for 35 minutes apiece probably in that game. Um, I, it's – 
it, it'll be tough. The one thing with Kansas that, you know, look, they're inside the top 10. They don't shoot a lot of threes, like well below average. You know, for most of this year, they've, they've, they've made the fewest threes in the league. Um, they shoot it in an okay rate. I have a hard time imagining a team. I just thinking nowadays, if you win the national title, you got to be able to go on a flurry where you can knock down some threes more often than not. Like if, if the three is absolutely not part of you thriving, I think it, it makes it, it makes it harder. So. No question. Uh, you, you don't need only look at UConn last year. I mean, right. they won six games by double figures and Danny Hurley barely heard uttered a swear word, Yeah, uh, you know? So yeah. um, I love the pairing of you and my buddy friend for Shilla. Yeah. What are, what are your keys for a guy who's an ex coach and, and enters every game he broadcasts as though we were preparing to play what are yeah. your keys for kind of teeing him up and letting him do his thing? You know, at this point, it's a hard question to answer because we've worked together for so long. I mean, we, I, I mean, it's now, I want to say not in the big 12 in the big 12, we've, we've worked together probably eight, nine years, but we used to start the year together, you know, going back to like 2006 so we've worked together for so long. We had one year where we did remember when they had the early preseason tournament in Puerto Rico and it was yeah. the week before all the main tournaments. So we went from Puerto Rico to Orlando working. So we worked six together, then six together. And then we went on the road and did games at Hay State, Stillwater, and Illinois. And, like, you know, we talked about possibly getting engaged after that. So, um, <laughs> don't have to no, Las Vegas. I, like, it, it, it's just, it's easy because he is so prepared. He also loves it, right? There's an yeah, excitement to it that he really, he, he, he really enjoys it. So, you know, no one is more fired up. And then I don't, I think the only thing is before the game, he'll tell me, okay, I, I, I'll ask him and he'll tell me what are, you know, what are the things you're focusing on? And I may steer him in that direction, but as a general idea, we've worked together so much that it just kind of comes naturally. I just feel like we're just sitting there talking and reacting and it feels about as comfortable as it can be. Our guest is John Shabby. You, of course, can see him on ESPN. He does the Cubs games for Marquee. You can hear him do the World Series on the radio as well. And, uh, John, from my own experience, I know the, the transition from going to college basketball to calling baseball feels like you're driving down the interstate and then you like almost slam on the brakes. What was that like for you, just the different paces of the two sports? No, so I experience it the other way, to be honest. Like the When I notice it is – going into college basketball where I just finished calling baseball games and my first college basketball game, when it ends, it's like that, that that's it. You guys are done. Does anybody <laughs> Two want to hours. Full? I'll call it. Like, <laughs> you guys want to maybe get the managers out and run it. Like it ends in two hours and you're just kind of wait, what? And so, yeah, it's, it's very different. I mean, I think that baseball is kind of the ultimate broadcaster sport, or at least the ultimate play-by-play sport, because there's so much space and there's so many choices in terms of 
content decisions to make. Are we going to talk about this? Talk about this? Because there's just a lot of there's a lot of space. There's a lot of canvas to work with. Um, and in college basketball, it's moving. And you know, in so many instances, my main main function is play caller and making sure you're. You know, like, look, Saturday, one of the things you've got to be mindful of is the crowd. The crowd is, you know, I'll be working with Fran and Chris Budden. The crowd's the fourth voice. So when things start to get really rocking in that place, you get out of the way, man. You want the people at home to feel what it's like when it's 125 decibels or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> one more for you before we let you go. And this is something I struggle with in, in my own work is finding a place to fit the, the advanced metrics and stats and analytics and all that yeah. stuff that, that makes sense for, for listeners or for viewers. Where do you come down on that? So, I mean, basketball is probably a little harder because, again, you don't have the space to explain. Um, I come I mean, look, I've been. I was influenced by Rob Nyer and big James and Bill James in a big way. Um, there's, you know, saber metrics in the baseball world for all the talk that analytics gets and people like to speak out against it. There is actually a definition for saber metrics and it is the search for objective knowledge about baseball. Um, and if you apply that to anything, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want objective knowledge about certain things? So as far as the actual advanced stats, um, I think that, you know, at this point, there's an aspect where I just kind of make them drink the sand so that the team that is by rate the best rebounding team in the country, I say they're the best rebounding team in the country, and I usually say it's by rate. Um, but do you understand what I'm saying? Like yeah. I just do it and, and you kind of drag them along and in baseball. Yeah. I don't do a ton on pitcher wins. I don't do a ton on RBIs. You just kind of objectively, I mean, I, I, and I've had some amazing ones with, I was in the middle of the game last year, uh, doing the Cubs and just to make the point to the average fan, I texted Jed Hoyer, president of baseball ops. And I said, in the middle of the game, this is true. Do you know who leads our team in RBIs? And he takes a guess and he's wrong. And then he asks <laughs> Carter Hawkins, the GM, and he's wrong. And he asks the head of R&D, uh, Essen Bakari, he's wrong. And it just should at least inform you of what they're looking at, how they're building the team. Sure. Whatever you want to say about you value it, like that's not how they're doing it. Yeah. So I think at least at the at the very least, I have some type of responsibility at certainly in baseball. And I think more and more in college basketball, if this is the stuff we're using, I think we have some responsibility um, to use it ourselves. So you're doing a great job with all of it. John Shabby, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Can I just tell you guys one thing really quickly? So absolutely. Um, my, I went to high school in New York City. Uh, I went to Regis High School. And uh, one of my really good buddies, John Walsh, um, his younger brother is Bob Walsh, who's uh, Rick Patino's assistant at St. John's. And I mean to tell you, we were college basketball. Back then, we were high school junkies. So we would go watch 
you know, Reese and Seeley and Autry play against Kenny Anderson and Rob Bourdain in high school. Um, but we have been blue ribbon guys from like back in the day. Like when you're talking about like, yo, did you get your blue ribbon? Um, so I work in this field, That's but so when awesome. I tell you that blue ribbon has been a part of my life world, just enjoyment of sports. Um, I'm talking about going back to the, the very, very beginning. So I, I, you guys are obviously vital to our prep, but you've been vital to my enjoyment of college basketball from back when I was in college and getting it. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to share that. Well, dude, uh, that just made my year. So thank you very much. Take care, John. See you guys, buddy. Chris, some fantastic matchups coming up this weekend. I mean, multiple top 10 showdowns in various leagues. Uh, number one, UConn at St. John's. That, that'll be an interesting game with, of course, the Huskies are playing as well as anybody in the reigning national champions against uh, Rick Pitino's team. You're going to have number seven, Duke, at number three, North Carolina for the uh, first round of that matchup for this season. Number four, Houston at number eight, Kansas should be a terrific game. Fifth ranked Tennessee at number 10, Kentucky on Saturday. I have a couple teams, Chris, as you talked about, uh, they won't be in the best of moods when they arrive at Rupp Arena. No. And then on Sunday, second ranked Purdue at number six, Wisconsin. That will be a terrific one as well. And there, there are a bunch of other really big games this weekend, but those are just some of the ones uh, involving top 10 teams. It's beginning to look more and more like UConn and Purdue or, uh, you know, that Northwestern game notwithstanding are kind of separating themselves. I really think um, UConn has, has a legit chance, e even after losing uh, Sonogo from last year's team and a couple of other stalwarts too, I think they've got a really good chance to repeat. Donovan Klingon's an awesome force in the post, and Tristan Newton is playing well enough to, in my mind, win the Bob Cousy Award for the best point guard. And then they got another astute portal transfer with Cam Spencer, who played at Rutgers, a guy that can make threes and is pretty tough. And and uh, it, it's just amazing how well they're playing. They pounded Xavier the other night. It was I could not believe the score when it popped up. Yeah, you look at UConn and you think about there there have only been two teams to repeat or two schools to repeat since UCLA's uh, long run of championships, uh, the Duke teams in 91 and 92, and then the Florida teams in, in 06 and 07. Nobody else has been able to accomplish that feat. So, and we'll see if UConn's able to do it. And boy, th those other matchups will be great. Saturday is going to be an awesome day of college basketball coming up. Well, Chris, as we uh, close out our show here, let's talk about student manager Kyle Wakefield. And you say, who is that? Well, he is a guy who is at Ole Miss. He's a student uh, at Ole Miss in Oxford. And he got a standing ovation during the Ole Miss-Mississippi State game, the, the Egg Bowl for basketball, for his high-energy work cleaning up a spill along the sideline. He went over with the dust mop to try to clean up a spill and figured out that that wasn't working. So he sprinted back to the goal stanch and got some towels and came back and got it all cleaned up and, and was really hustling the whole way. So uh, shout-out to Kyle Wakefield, the student manager at Ole Miss. <laughs> we should all love our work as much as Kyle does. Um, it was funny. He brought that round thingy. Yeah, know, the, the dust, dust mop deal. Yeah. Yeah. And and he then he bolted and, and the ref was like, where'd he go? And he was just getting ready to pick that thing up. And the next thing you know, Kyle comes back into the scene sliding like he's digging for home, you know, and he, he's got a bunch of towels and he's wiping that spill up or whatever it was. And 
I just thought that was so funny. And the ESPN announcers had a had a good time with it too. But I hope he's on scholarship because he's learning. <laughs> yeah, he uh, quickly became an internet sensation. And ESPN did a little bit where uh, I saw on Sports Center the other morning where. Uh, Guy came out with towels and was wiping up the desk in front of the anchors. I thought that was a pretty funny bit. And I'm thinking, you know, where was Kyle Wakefield when I could have used him in Jacksonville in 2019 when we had a big spill? I mean, we could have used that guy that day hustling down to, to clean up everything when, of course, uh, Emmett Williams came over the table and, and I had my 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, your um, glory, your moment of glory came in almost getting killed. Nothing. <laughs> You almost, you yeah, almost that, that may be overstating it a little bit <laughs> in the powder. Um, who was that? What was it? What was the player's name? He, Emmett Williams for uh, Emmett, LSU. Emmett, Emmett Williams. If I recall, he was like 6'8, 250. Yes, he, he was a big he, dude. He was no, no small dude. And uh, I, I just thought, man, that's my boy there, man. He's taking that like a man. <laughs> Got to take a charge sometimes. We'll get it all cleaned up, and we'll join you again next week. He's Chris. I'm Kevin. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk to you next time.